right? There are ways in which sometimes kind of the idea of the quote unquote voice of a young person in the space is, is actually tokenizing, right? This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. That's Dr. Elizabeth Bishop. This week, we're doing a special power-up episode with Bishop and myself talking more about, among other things, her book, Becoming Activist, uh, which is about to see a sort of prequel that she talks about um, in the coming year, which I'm really excited about. When I think of the experts around us in the space of critical literacy and um, thinking about youth practice as it relates to uh, young people embracing and sort of coming up into an identity of activism, um, Bishop is uh, somebody who I admire greatly and who has been in this space uh, for, for quite a while. My conversation with Bishop, we cover a few things. I want to talk about her work, but it also lays the foundation, I think, for uh, lots of future conversation related to uh, particularly young people, their digital identities, and what relation critical literacy and their empowerment as young activists uh, plays in that. So uh, I think you're going to like this conversation a lot. We chatted over Skype, so there's some echo and uh, you'll hear lots of fun Skype notifications. Um, But before we get started, don't forget, rate, review us. Uh, No such thing needs your help to continue to garner support for the podcast. Hashtag no such thing podcast on Twitter. Tweet at me, M.A. Lesser, to enter to win a new Google Pixel. Check out my chat with Bishop. Bishop, how are you? All right. How's it going? It's going great. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, I'm real happy to talk to you today. So I want to jump right in because uh, I have a lot that I want to ask you about. Um, we're going to talk about your work and uh, and and some of the work that actually you and I share in common for sure. Um, I was really excited to hear about the work that you're working on right now. You have a book coming out in 2018, uh, we hope, but... Uh, I'm interested because I started with some of your earlier writing and there's an article that I found from your work at University of Pittsburgh that was called Critical Literacy, Bringing Theory to Praxis. And what struck me about it is that you've always been in this really unique role that um, has has been part researcher, part practitioner. And what I find so important about your work is that you're constantly thinking about how to bring what you're finding back to practice. Um, I'm curious if you can tell us uh, about, tell us a little bit about Becoming Activist, the book, uh, your last book that was published in 2015, which I think uh, educators of all types should have a look at. Um, but if you wouldn't mind just sort of how your work kind of ramped up to that point and, and what you're working on now. Sure. So, um, you know, it's the, the linkage that you named between being a researcher and being a practitioner is something that's, I think, just really key to being able to do work that is grounded in the critical pedagogical tradition. So, um, 
you know, I went back, I had been in Pittsburgh previously. I was, I did cultural studies program at Carnegie Mellon. And so my work is very much grounded in cultural theory. And when I went back to Pittsburgh in 2009, um, I knew that in the wide field of language, literacy, and culture, that what I wanted to do was really look for what sort of work is ethical, political, and humanizing in terms of literacy learning in schools and out of school. I had started my career as a public school teacher in New York City, um, and I taught English and global history in the Bronx. And a lot of observations and experiences that I had during that time made me begin to understand that, that, that there are dynamic young people in classrooms throughout this country who are frequently not being challenged to get to really dive into the depths of what they do know and what they're willing to inquire about. And so I had young people in, in my classroom space who were really uh, hungry for the opportunity to get to dive into topics that were social, political, cultural, but were really relevant in their lives and in ways that connected back to our historical foundations and grounding in our content. At the same time, I was observing young people who in after school and out of school spaces were doing really rigorous, critical and remarkable work that was very much grounded in the Frarian tradition of um, you know, organic critical consciousness. So um, when I went back to do my doctoral studies, I initially thought that I would be looking more at school-based curricula, um, like literary historical curricula of transgression, you know, with um, starting and looking at the Victorians, Oscar Wilde, all the way up to the current day. And, you know, those things are still relevant for me. But one of the things I, I observed in my studies was this obituary of school-based classroom learning that I was hearing from colleagues and classmates. Um, and I don't, I don't subscribe to that idea, but I understood where it was coming from. It was, you know, feeling, um, constricted through, um, the need for curricula that sometimes was really about teaching to the test and scripted curricula that was being picked up and, um, that educators and young people were expected to kind of go step by step through. So what I found compelling was that there is this after school and out of school space of learning, um, which is youth organizing. I mean, and, and that space is a wide space, but I kind of narrowed my focus on youth organizing because what I saw was this really remarkable, deep, critical engagement with content um, through research and uh, dissection and creation and production of, of media and new media. So the book, Becoming Activist, is really a testament to that work. Um, you know, I am a cultural theorist and I'm a queer theorist and a post-structuralist. So for me, this was never grounded in telling a singular story. It was very much about elevating the many voices and the many ways that young folks articulate their identities as activists. So Becoming Activist is that. And it's a book that gives me a lot of, um, I have so much respect for the young folks that were involved in that work. And the language of the students is everywhere across that text. So the, the book in 2018 coming out um, is titled Embodying Theory, Epistemology, Aesthetics, and Resistance. And what that book really is, is looking at the theoretical and philosophical grounding of that is kind of the background or the prequel of what becoming activist was. So frequently in educational research, there's 
assumptions either of post-positivism or social construction, but in ways that kind of have something of a narrow focus on how meaning is made or how truth and knowledge is understood. And I was in many ways looking to kind of explode that paradigm doing um, critical auto-ethnographic work and thinking about what a polyvocal mixed media portrait might look like and, and really kind of challenging and building upon some of the, the formal structures of educational research. So uh, the embodying theory is going to be an interesting way to kind of help highlight what does it mean to make theory walk and to pick up concepts like power knowledge from Foucault and understand that it has real implications in, in, in our day-to-day, -day, not only in the ivory tower. Mm. There's there's so much in what you just said that I would love to, uh, I feel like you just, dropped topics for uh two or three more episodes that i need to now have you back for um to, to but i will say that when you told me about the upcoming project i was really excited because in reading some of your previous work i felt like um i needed to go back and do some schooling on some of the cultural theory uh that you reference but um uh, because you know, you were getting into the topics that you were, didn't have a, a chance to sort of, uh, explain retroactively. So I'm, I'm glad that we're getting sort of an episode one. Uh, and, and I actually, I can't wait to, uh, to check it out. So you're in a room right now that has some echo and I know that room well, because it's one I've been in many times to plan, uh, partnership and events and, and things at global kids in, uh, right near, uh, Baruch college, uh, in Manhattan. And, uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit uh, just about the role that it, we were talking about theory and practice. Tell me about your, your role as a sort of practitioner and somebody who's kind of mining both of those stores for global kids, which, um, is just an extraordinary organization with, with a great legacy in New York. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Global Kids is, an, is my intellectual and professional home in the city, for sure. When I was a public school teacher, Global Kids was, did a residency in my classroom. And so, you know, when I was teaching um, the region's content around the French Revolution, Global Kids was teaching about the Haitian Revolution wow. and really rounding out a people's history and an understanding of the Global South that we don't always see in the school day curricula. So, uh, you know, I went to work for the organization in 0809 before going back to do the research that I just told you about. And I'm super happy to be back now. Besides the echo, I'm also sitting here with an image of Nelson Mandela over my shoulder and um, some of the articles from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights looking at me down from the wall. And I feel like that really speaks to to Global Kids, um, which, you know, is an organization that's been around for almost 30 years and is very much about making sure that young folks in New York City, in D.C., and in wider environments have the opportunity um, to, to really tap into experiences that they may have otherwise not had the option to do. So, you know, when we do our work well, Global Kids connects students from underserved communities with the knowledge, skills, and experiences to be globally aware, active citizens. And that looks like a lot of different things. Um, you know, we're in couple dozen schools across the city and in D.C. and doing work with elementary, middle and high school students really around thinking about global citizenship, global education, human rights frameworks and how to do 
deep learning that is generative and that is really elevates the voices and the experiences of young folks. Um, and one thing that I continue to care about in the work here at Global Kids as a scholar, as a educator at Youth Studies, is positioning young people and the adults that work in youth-facing organizations to cultivate spaces to learn across difference. So to me, that's a huge element of what this is in um, a political climate that is sometimes really moralistic or really divisive that, um, you know, the, the good work of critical pedagogy, the good work that I think Global Kids has uh, a reputation of doing is around civic engagement work that is thoughtful and that provides the opportunity for young people to have, to take up challenging content and to think about multiple perspectives on that content and to devise strategies around learning more, going deeper in their research, conducting outreach, having, you know, what the phrase authentic audiences, although sometimes you read it a lot in, in education journals and it, and it feels like, what does it mean to have an authentic audience? We have young folks who presented the United Nations, who present in front of city council, who are advocating in various spaces. And so the authenticity is really about identifying real needs in communities like the need to have speed bumps put in in front of your elementary school and knowing that there are actually steps that you can take as a young person who has power in the present to affect real change. And we've seen, the organization has seen, I've been a, I've been a strong proponent of GK even when I wasn't here. Um, we've seen a lineage of young folks who start in sixth grade or start in ninth grade who end up going and doing human rights law work or end up in uh, public service. And they're really doing it with this intentional grounding in, in framing things through rights and human rights. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I do here at Global Kids is, is head up our digital leadership and learning program. And that's got a, a long history here, um, was formerly the online uh, learning program. And what we're starting to do is, is really tap into the expertise of the young folks who are with us. We've always been integrating digital tools and new media into our various um, more analog youth development spaces. But what, you know, over the past 10 years, it's been very much about like, what is the integration of connected learning in after school spaces? And what does it look like to make sure that young folks um, who sometimes have historically not had access to the tools and the knowledge and the skills to really have their hands on as makers and practitioners advocating for themselves and for their communities. It's, it's powerful work and I, I really can't think of anywhere else I'd rather be. It's outstanding. I can, I can, uh, I'm going to let the siren pass in the background for you. It'd be New York city if we didn't have, <laughs> if you didn't, didn't have some sirens. Uh, so you are now, I couldn't agree with you more about global kids. Um, I think the ethos of, uh, global kids offices even, and, and where they, uh, it's a, a center where a lot of programming also happens, I think is a place that educators and youth, uh, should all have some exposure to. So, um, you are also teaching in the master's program at CUNY SPS in Youth Studies, which uh, I also am a part of. Uh, and 
I'm, I'm curious what you're now. So these are youth studies is a program that is full of early career, mid career professionals in youth serving all kinds of youth serving roles. And I'm, I'm wondering from all of the experience that you have as a practitioner, as a researcher, um, what are you teaching right now? And, and what are the things that you hope students in that program are coming away from your classes with? So I think that the youth studies program is really, it's on the vanguard of something hugely important in New York City, New York State. Sarah Zeller Berkman is vision, visionary as the academic director. And um, it's, you know, I teach in the evenings and the students who I work with, overwhelmingly, they're full-time employees in youth development and other youth serving um, spheres. So we are all working overtime in the service of, you know, justice oriented programming for young folks. And one of the experiences that I have is, you know, it can be, it can be a long day by the time six o'clock shows up and you might walk into the room tired, but I'll tell you what, we all leave so energized. And I think that speaks volumes to the the community that you can cultivate in, in youth studies spaces so I teach two classes. I teach the youth action and agency class, which really provides a lot of grounding and uh, history into the research on kind of the, the trajectory, um, although not linear, but of, um, you know, new directions in youth development and positive youth development, what the research on civic engagement, youth participatory action research and youth activism can tell us about our practices. And I really appreciate one, the commitment and the deep thinking that the students in the MA program bring to the space and also their real willingness to push back. Um, you know, it's, it's a program that's grounded in the real content of really working with real young people. And so the realness stands out in all of the dialogues that we have. And so if we're looking at like models uh, for measuring success around civic engagement, we have really challenging and important conversations around what does this look like if, when you're working in spaces where youth are um, in, in lockup or in residential care and, you know, really kind of pushing some of the some of what sometimes can be perceived as like overly idealistic ideas and frameworks or conceptual tools and ensuring that we're really thinking about what does it look like to do this work in real contexts with real young people whose real lives are on the line. Mm. Um, and, and so that's, it's profound um, work for me. And I also teach at the research methods class and, you know, research methods is, is probably one of the most exciting things that I get to do um, to help folks understand one, that they have epistemological grounding, that they have worldviews that they're bringing to even thinking about research. And what I've come to understand overwhelmingly is research has, uh, has a bad reputation as something that is hard. It is off limits. It is um, overwhelmingly quantitative in nature. And you know, that it's, that it's far away from what we do. And so all of my work is really about grounding us in research in ways that are is dynamic and that feeds the questions that we really need to know about our program and our projects. So um, it's been very exciting to work with the MA Youth Studies students as, as they workshop and work through. And if you ask any of them, they'll tell you that, you know, we spend, we can spend two hours workshopping a research question. And they've said to me, you know, I never realized how important a single word in one of these questions could be mm -hmm. in terms of what are you asking? And based on what you're asking, 
what are you going to get? What are you going to find? And, you know, one of the Kim Gomez, who's at UCLA, but was a mentor of mine at the University of Pittsburgh, often talks to me about how this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And, you know, any of the research work that we do, it will have limits. And that's okay because those of us who are really in these justice oriented spheres, particularly in the sphere of positive youth development, this is this is a life's work. You know, you don't clock out at 5 p.m. I have dreams about civic engagement, right? It's this is the this is what keeps us up and keeps us moving. And there are days when you know you read um, about the about DACA, and there's days when you read things that, while simultaneously evoke a lot of struggle and grief and despair, are also exactly the moment that we dive in deeper because that's what the work calls for, right? It calls for us to figure out ways to build coalition and build community and ensure that if, if nowhere else than in civil society, in the interpersonal and intersubjective, that we can build spaces for radical healing and, and for care and, and real ethos of um, alterity, of a willingness to, to try to understand the experiences of others even if those were never our experiences. So I, I learned so much working with the students in the youth studies program. They're some of the most tapped in and energized and critical students that I've worked with. And I've worked in a lot of spheres. Yeah. Uh, I think put so well, I, I that's I've in my short time, uh, with exposure to the students, uh, in youth studies, it's been my experience as well. And, and, um, I'm excited. The, the more I talk about the program with folks out there, uh, you know, in, in other contexts around the country, um, folks are just so excited that it exists and, uh, and interested to see it, uh, happening more locally to them. So, uh, I, I hope that it gets raised up as a model that, uh, others can adopt as well. Um, I, one of the things I want to make sure we get to talk about, it's a, it's a part of your book, Becoming Activists. I know it's been a part of your work over time and definitely an interest of the audience who, who listens to this podcast is thinking about the digital lives of youth and what it's meant for their becoming activist. Um, can you say something about that just to, to get us into the topic? Absolutely. So, um, you know, I feel like it's, you can't really talk about the digital lives or digital literacies um, without thinking more widely about, you know, framing, and I do, and this is how I frame it through critical literacy. So if I may, just to like pivot there and then circle back, um, you sure, know, there's sure. something, there's something about, and it's interesting actually, because, you know, I have this book talk tomorrow and, um, and I've seen some interesting pushback. I don't know if you want to call it trolls. I'm not sure what you'd call it, but folks who think that, um, that really this is only about literacy and that even talking about activism is like a gimmick. And so right there is like such an opportunity for deep learning, right? Because, you know, when, when we talk about, I, you work with some folks like at the Civic Participation Project at Teachers College, Yolanda Celia Ruiz and others, and we have these conversations when you're talking about literacy, what is it that you're talking about? And I think that there are some oversimplified understandings of what that might even be, right? So it's not so much about like decoding and the words on the page, but um, this would be familiar to many of your listeners, I'm sure, but it's, it's really from the Frarian tradition of reading the word and the world. So, you know, in our moment, the world is highly digitized. 
At the same time, um, I'm always quick to remind folks it is also still highly embodied, humanized, and analog as well. So, um, you know, when I think about like the digital um, identities of youth activists or how technology supports their activist identities, I never think about it as a standalone entity, but rather as tools and um, modes of interaction. So, you know, in, in the book, Becoming Activist, a lot of the young folks talk about how they first learned about various campaigns or issues it, through social media or through other digital spheres, but that then they took that learning into analog spaces in offline. They took that learning into creating reading groups or um, support groups or discussion arenas. And so a huge element of, of thinking about the digital for me is also thinking about like, what is that critical literacy pedagogy and how, when we do this work well, and this work is, yes, it's critical literacy, but it's also critical media awareness. Um, it's a form of popular political education. It's, it's about being able to cultivate the capacity for young folks to explore their personal boundaries, their socio-political, economic, and intellectual borders, and to dare to cross into spheres that, they, that they're unfamiliar with. So, you know, my mom is a librarian, and I'll tell you that since the 80s, she's been talking about the danger that cable news puts us into silos and echo chambers. And so this is, this precedes the internet. Um, but the same I think holds true. So I'm always really invested in working alongside youth activists who are willing to, to read the, the hard content that's not, um, an echo chamber, but that's coming from, you know, opposition press and, and being able to have those tools to really dissect what are you hearing, what are you seeing, and how does this either affirm your experience, or if it doesn't, what opportunity do you have to counter-narrate? And that is highly true for a lot of the black and brown youth that I've worked with over the past decade here in New York City and in other spheres where there are narratives that are told about certain populations um, without their inclusion in this, it's the creation of that narrative. So something that remains kind of core to the, the principles of this work for me is how do we create spaces, digital, virtual, online, offline, analog, interpersonal spaces for young people to counter narrate against the narratives that have been created about them. I love that. I love the word counter narrate. Um, can you give us some examples, uh, drawing from your experience and what you're seeing out there? It can be at Global Kids, but, but uh, broader, hopefully, as well. Some models, I, I want to hold up some models in the space who are um, doing great work at the intersection of uh, youth programming and um and critical literacy and particularly folks who are sort of using uh, the way you describe it, the young people's digital lives as tools and, and sort of leveraging that um, to help them engage uh, civically and, and as activists. Uh, do you have examples in mind? Yeah, I mean, you know, a ton come to mind and, um, you know, I'm, I'm wary to kind of leave out any of the major players because, of course, there are huge movements of youth, um, many of whom don't, their platforms don't get elevated, right? We know that really the forefront of a lot of the justice-oriented movements right now are being led by women of color, people of color, trans folks, and that those aren't always the folks who get recognition, 
So I'm, I'm mindful of that even sure. as, as I respond to this. Um, one, one story that comes to mind to me from actually from within the Becoming Activist text is um, one of the young women in the book who all of the students had self-selected pseudonyms. So the name that she chose was Awesome Woman. And she tells um, a story about being involved in educational theater, both um, intellectually and in her scholarly trajectory, but also in informal spaces of student organizing. Um, and this is, you know, some of this transcends out of school spaces, university campuses and community spaces. So at the time she was involved in the creation of the hijabi monologues. And what this was, um, for those who might not be familiar, is is built off of the same kind of conceptual frame that Eve Ensler used to launch the vagina monologues. So having the opportunity for Muslim women to tell their stories and their experiences. And a lot of what the um, iteration of that that happened here in New York City was was built off of connecting and learning and like interaction, digital, video, and otherwise, uh, with a creator of the hijabi monologues in another place in the U.S. And so, what's really relevant, I think, about this is that there were there were kind of low, not low risk. It's always high risk in some regards, but there were there were quick and easy ways to connect across geographic spaces that otherwise that might not have been true. So, um, they were able to interface with like uh, other folks who were doing this work in Minnesota and other places in the country that, you know, 15, 20 years ago, that would have been a much heavier lift. And so sometimes I think about just those low, lower levels of connectivity that allow the feeling in the sense that folks are doing this work across many spaces. Mm. And actually the very first quote in the book, Becoming Activists, is from another one of the young women who says that the reason that they organized is because they knew that other folks were doing similar organizing on other campuses and that there was strength that you could draw from knowing that you're not alone in the struggle. So, you know, one of the things that's really relevant in the hijabi monologue story is that uh, that group ended up being displaced. They had a show they were supposed to put on and the institutional space that they were in had double booked that space, um, which felt a bit like a betrayal to, to the young women who had been involved in that space. And so they were able to kind of counter mobilize and they did a lot of that online um, to, to get um, the attention of the administration and to ensure that they weren't just dismissed or quieted or silenced. And so, you know, sometimes I think about it in those kind of the small moves that speak loudly and that are huge, right? It's not, yes, it's, a, it's vital and important that young folks build um, entire tools. You know, we do with GK, like we do game design. We do all of these various things that produce these important final products. And I talk to folks in other spheres, you know, who are also members of the Hive NYC, who also do like digital media and other sort of connected learning production. And yes, those final outcomes are very important, right? There's a celebratory aspect to that. But along the way, the lives of young people are impacted every day. And so I feel like it's really important to also elevate the small wins, the small victories that come from being able to start a campaign and all of a sudden get the attention of the administration on your campus and then set a meeting and then be able to perhaps create or cultivate spaces that didn't previously exist for you or your group so that you are continuing to carve out spaces that perhaps historically were really denying you spaces of entry. Mm. So, I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's innumerable more kind of movements and things that I think about 
when it comes to that. But inevitably, to me, this is about simultaneously really elevating experiences of folks who have historically kind of been at the margins of some sort of mainstream status quo narrative. And that's very critical literacy work and recognizing that there's a ton of trauma and healing that needs to happen within these spaces and within individuals who, you know, in the process of counter narrating, in the process of telling the stories about who you are and what your experience is, you often have to revisit a lot of the ways that you've been subjugated or excluded. And so, you know, when we do our work well, and when I say we, I mean anyone who's really on the forefront of, of this youth um, youth facing work, mm-hmm. ways that are anti-oppressive and that are ethical, it is not so much about telling young folks how to be or how to use a tool, but to help them in their own vision and their development, right? The the idea that young folks aren't just leaders in the future, but that they're leaders now. And that when we do our work well, we position them with the tools and skills that they need to advance their own causes. Can you, for those who, who don't know it, um, as I think a lot of us uh, don't, but should know more about critical literacy. Can you just define the term uh, quickly? Sure. Um you know, I think I said this before, so not to be redundant, but, um, you know, in the most quick summation I could give you, critical literacy is about an understanding of structure and structural violence often in the result of that and really understanding the operations of power systems. So, um, you know, there was a moment in history where um, the idea of, quote unquote, cultural literacy emerged and um, I believe this was like the very late 80s. And it was a it was a list. It was meant to be an exhaustive list of the things that a quote unquote good American needed to know to be a quote unquote good citizen. And it was a very white, very kind of Eurocentric list. And it left out tons of folks and tons of experiences of populations um, who equally are good Americans. Right. So critical literacy in many ways although it wasn't a direct response, really challenges that idea and asks questions like who speaks and who's allowed to define the terms around which we speak and how we articulate our experiences and what does it mean to be silenced or to not have um, representations that are reflections of your identity in your curriculum and the things that you read. So, you know, when critical literacy pedagogy is done well, it, it creates spaces to cultivate the capacity for anyone, but young people are the people I work with to, to not only begin to illustrate their personal boundaries and to connect and understand kind of where they have drawn boundaries in their lives, but to also be invited to cross, right? Uh, what Giro calls border crossing, to actually have opportunities to think in ways that perhaps you didn't used to think possible or in ways that um, suspend judgment. So, you know, there are, there's a few kind of real quick elements, I think, that help un- make sense of what critical literacy is, really built off of that idea of praxis, um, of action and reflection cycles. And it's about, one, mobilizing learners as actors who have the skills in the present to interrupt oppression, two, to conduct research analysis and to really interrogate multiple viewpoints three, to be identifying sociopolitical issues in their own lives, Um, four, to begin to design and undertake actions to address some of those issues and and disparities, and then also to have space to reflect and create visions for the future. Now, those things aren't 
linear. They're not in isolation. You don't, it's not true that you're done with one step and then you move on to the next, right? The, as we know, campaigns of justice-oriented campaigns are, they are, as you know, Martin Luther King said, like the arc is long, but it bends towards justice. And so this, this work isn't, it's not done over the course of an academic year. It's not done over the course of a semester, but you can build the capacity um, for, for creating spaces of care and understanding. And, and to me, that is very much, there are core principles there around nonviolence and anti-oppression and building spaces um, where, where folks can feel safe and heard and seen and understood. And, you know, sometimes we talk about safe space and it feels like we're not sure what we mean. And um, a friend just said recently, like, how about safer spaces? How about not claiming that we can make spaces that are always safe? But what does it mean to create spaces that can become safer like and that, that can make folks feel free um, to offer their truth and to hopefully, when we do things well, complicate each other's thinking so that it's not easy to make generalizations. So it's not easy to make, you know, one-off dismissals. And, you know, in a moment that is somewhat reactionary, I think it's more important than ever to be thinking not only about self and self-interest, but really to think what does it mean to build community across cultural spaces, across borders, any kind of border you could imagine. Mm. My organization, as you know, and some of the work that goes on at Global Kids um, is, uh, you know, we're working in this space of production centric sort of project based work where young people are using the digital world to to um create and uh put their ideas into the world and and uh there are a lot of programs like this nationally uh the sort of maker centered production centered project based programs and teachers who are really interested and in doing this work uh for a long time in some ways i think you know um, I, I have argued <laughs> that, uh, in, in a lot of ways, maker education is something that is being reinvented right now, but is not necessarily new. I, I wonder if you have any advice, uh, sort of parting advice. I'll make this our last question. Cause I want to, I want to, uh, respect the, the amount of time that, uh, I have with you, but, um, if you have advice for working educators in this space who are thinking about making and learning with young people, um, what should be from the, from critical literacy as a, um, a frame, what should we be bringing into our practice, uh, to consider that? And, and what recommendation would you have to all educators who are designing the kinds of spaces that we do at mouse, um, to make sure that we have, the ideas in becoming activist uh, at the at the top of mind. So, I mean, I think the most succinct response I can give you is to design with the young folks to build curricula and build projects alongside the young folks that you are going to be educating. Um, and it might seem really straightforward, but that is the advice. Um, and that's what I see to be what makes programs that come out of global kids and other similar spaces dynamic is because it is not um, placed upon young folks. It is really built alongside them. So, you know, making and learning spaces are powerful when 
they, they can always be powerful, but I would argue they're probably more powerful when they're built and designed with young people at the table from the very start, right? There are ways in which sometimes kind of the idea of the quote unquote voice of a young person in the space is, is actually tokenizing, right? And you get the perspective of one young person alongside innumerable adults. And that's not really the same thing as sitting down with a group of young people who are hungry for the opportunity to build spaces that they want to be in and that they want to develop in and that they want to grow in. So, you know, whether it's, and I agree with you, there, there's something very old about this work. This is project-based learning. This is earlier ideas of progressive education. Um, and so it really is about sitting down with young folks and understanding they have skills that educators sometimes don't have. They have a vision of a future that might be different than the vision that a lot of us bring to the work. And we all have things to learn from each other. So come with the skills and energy and excitement that you have as an educator and really come learning to listen to the experiences of young folks. I've been working in education for what feels like forever. And every day I try to work on getting better at listening to young people. Mm. I love that. And I think it's a great place to end this conversation, but I do hope that you will come back because, uh, I have, I have so many topics that I would love to cover with you. And, and in fact, um, next time I would, I would love to make sure that we have some young people, uh, in the room for the conversation. This was a, a great, uh, start to, I hope, um, only only the beginning of a dialogue we can we can share through the podcast um yeah thank you for making the space available and i can think of countless young folks who i know who are engaged in deep making spaces and game design who would be thrilled to get on the mic with you awesome i'm going to follow up with you about that after this um your book is uh becoming activist it was published in 2015 uh there is a new book and you'll have to repeat the title for me yep it's called embodying theory epistemology aesthetics and resistance dr elizabeth bishop uh i highly recommend you check out uh the work it is so important to the field bishop thank you so much for joining us Thank you so much. This podcast was produced with not nearly enough support. To find out more about sponsorship or funding No Such Thing, hit me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser or find my contact info at nosuchthingpodcast.wordpress. No Such Thing is made possible through partnership with CUNY SPS and their Masters in Youth Studies. Find out more at sps.cuny.edu. And Mouse. Find us on the web at mouse.org. Beats for this show are produced by Leroy Tindy, a young man who I took to the hole when they called him Black Guys. You can find more on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. The podcast is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you. Show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.wordpress.com.